Good morning. Before we begin the sermon this morning, just want to let the congregation know about something new that we'll be starting at Lehman, especially if you have young children. This is going to matter to you. Um, Brother John, our, one of our elders here, mentioned this in his bulletin article, but we're going to be giving these kiss forms out to the children. And this will cover ages or grades from pre-K all the way through eighth grade. And what this is, it is a note-taking sheet, and it'll be grade specific or directed, and I'll start having these. We'll have these at the Welcome Center when you come in. But if you could, have your children to start to get these and to use them to take notes, and then there'll be a folder at the front there that, where you'll turn these in, and I'll keep track of them, and there'll be a reward or different type stages that you can get to when they hand in 20 or 30 or 50. There'll be something for them in this. But we want our kids to learn Scripture, to learn the Word of God, but not only that, to learn how to take notes and to ingest these lessons, and hopefully this will go a long way in doing that. And so if you have children, begin the next Lord's Day, or even tonight, I'll put these out there for the evening worship. Just go ahead and get one of these KISS forms, which stands for Kids Involved in Studying Scripture. And that's what we want, and that's what our elders want for the congregation here, to the glory of God and the benefit of our children. Stuart Townend wrote this song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How vast beyond all measure. And it was an amazing attempt to capture in that song, or at least in that opening stanza, the words that Paul penned for us in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. When you turn your Bible to that passage, what you find Paul saying in verse 14 is that he is on his knees praying. Now, for Paul, that's not unusual activity by any stretch of the imagination. Just read his epistles. But what Paul is praying on this occasion is anything but ordinary. In fact, it's extraordinary. What Paul is praying for the Ephesians to know and to grasp and to get a handle on is beyond human comprehension. He prays that they might know that Christ dwells in their hearts by faith in verse 17. And then in verse 18, he mentions the breadth and length and depth and height. But then in verse 19, he makes his point that they may know the love of Christ, which, according to Paul, surpasses human knowledge. That's what Paul's praying for these Christians, to know the, the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which, according to Paul, is beyond the human comprehension or ability to do so. Now, we can know that God loves us, and surely the Ephesians knew that. But God's love is deeper and richer than our ability to fully comprehend. Romans 11 and verse 33 says, oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how in search for his judgments and his ways beyond our ability to find out. In an assembly like this one on a Sunday morning, where maybe many of us have been coming to worship services like this for decades, we may very well be tempted to sprint past what Paul is praying here and say, well, I know that God loves me, but I assure you. We don't know it to the depths and to the degree that we can. In fact, Paul says in verse 19, it's impossible to know it to the fullest extent of his capability. It's beyond human knowledge. If you think this morning, you know that God loves you. That's great. If you would say to the to that, I know that God loves me. May I encourage you, whatever degree to which you think God loves you, to take it up several million more notches. And even then, according to Paul, you haven't reached the zenith. Paul says... God loves you more than you can comprehend. Brenda Hunter, Brenda Hunter wrote a book in 1998 with this title. My God, do you love me? She says she wrote the book at a time in her life when she was extremely vulnerable. She was friendless. She was suffering loss. She was struggling. And so she did what any God honoring and God fearing person would do. She started reading her Bible. 
but not just reading her Bible. She would read her Bible and alongside her Bible reading, she would just jot down notes and meditations, which eventually became the book which she published in 1998 entitled My God, Do You Love Me? But the first entry in that journal is this title. My God, do you truly love me? Here's the last stanza from that first entry. I need to know where we stand, Lord. I need to feel I'm not alone. I need to know that you care, that you love me with an intense, enduring love that will carry me softly into eternity. My God, do you love even me? Here's the reality. Miss Hunter is not the only one that needs to know the answer to that question. You need to know it and I need to know it. And not only do we need to know it, we need to believe it. If we would ever live, really live, we need to know the answer to this question. My God, do you really love me? She's not the only one asking it. When they took a poll of the top 101 religious questions that are searched on Google every month and they've been compiling these for years, I want you to appreciate the types of questions that people are asking every month. Five million times a month, the top question that's corralled by Google researchers is this. Who is God? Or what is love? Two million times a month, people search for this. What is agape love? 246,000 times a month, people want to know. Does Jesus love me? Does Jesus care about me? People are concerned about this question. And if we know our hearts this morning, deep down within us, we want to know the same thing. What we're going to do this morning, what I'm going to attempt to do is what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. But what Paul also said is incomprehensible. The only other thing that we know of that is boundless and limitless and stretches beyond anybody's full ability to comprehend is God himself. What Paul says in Ephesians three is that God's love is as colossal and expansive as God himself. And to know that will change us and shape us in the deepest ways. What I want to impress on your heart and on my own this morning, based on the text, are six emphatic proofs that God really loves us. I have one goal at the end of this lesson. It is for every one of us to leave more impressed and more awestruck with how much God really does love us, but also with the consequences that that bears out. If these things are really true about us, how should we live? Who should we be? How should we see ourselves and others? My God, do you really love me? Well, God's love is deep. It's expansive and it's wide. And he wants us all to be assured of it. Here's the first one. Number one, how deep is God's love? God's love and the depth of it is seen in creation. When we open up our Bibles to Genesis 1, we're immediately impressed as Moses drives this point home that the God that we serve and love is powerful. By the mere utterance of his words, the sun appears, the plants spring up, the stars are hung. The moon is there and there are animals and the fish swim and the birds fly. But on day six, Moses doesn't just want us to be in awe of God's power, but impressed with God's love. Genesis 1:26 says God had a plan in mind. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and the, the animals that creep on the earth. And then in verse 27, he did that. So he made God and God made man in his own image. In the image of God created he them, male and female, he created them. And then in verse 28, he gives us dominion, dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Does God love us? How deep is the father's love deep enough to create us in the first place? The Bible says that God loves us and that's shown in the very fact that he created us. Isaiah 64 and verse eight says that we're the work of his hands. 
Psalm 100 and verse 3 says, Don't you know that He is God? It is He that has made us, and not we ourselves. We're the sheep of His hand and the people of His pasture. The very fact that there is a you evidences this reality. God loves you. Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14 talk about God knitting us and creating us and crafting us before we ever came out of our mother's womb. And that's all driving home to this one reality, that God, he really loves us. You know, people that believe in evolution, people that believe that we're here by slime and chance, they need to know this. That it's not an accident that God made us on purpose and with a purpose. But people that question God's love for them, they need to know this as well. How do I know that God loves me? How can I be assured? How can I be convinced about the depth of God's love? Well, this begins by virtue of the fact that God in his eternal wisdom has created us. Remember, God did not create humanity because he was lonely. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoyed each other's fellowship and company before he ever made Adam. The reality is, is that God's love is so rich and so deep that he couldn't help but lavish it out. And he chose to do that by creating us so that we might know it and that we might experience it. And why would he do something like that? It's because he loves you. It's because he loves me. The Bible draws this point to us before we ever get off the opening page of Scripture. God created man, but we're a step above the animals. We're a step above the sun. We're a step above everything that dwells in heaven itself besides the divine. David once wondered in Psalm 8 and verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care about him? David saying, what makes man so special? Well, the answer to that question is also penned by David in Psalm 17 and verse 8. You are the apple of his eye. The crowning achievement of his creation is you as a human being. And God loves you and God cares about you. How deep is God's love? It's deep enough to create us and make us who we are. You know him, Mickey Mouse, right? 1928, he was created by Walt Disney, but here's what most people don't know. He's really plan B. Disney created a character by the name of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, but in a distribution deal gone bad with Universal, he lost that character. And as a result of that, he said, well, let's just go ahead with Mickey Mouse, who has been stealing the hearts and the money of young people and their parents for years since. When the Bible says that God created you and me, and when the Bible says he did it out of his love and for his glory, Isaiah 43 and verse 7, it does not mean that God had some other creation in mind. And when those things went south and when they didn't go as he planned, well, he settled on you and on me. The reality is that God had you and me in mind before the foundation of the world. And he created us because he wanted to, because he loves us. The Bible says in him we live and move and we exist and have our being, Acts 17, 28. He gives us life and animates us with existence, Acts 17 and verse 25. He crafts us and fashions us, Psalm 119 and verse 73. Job said, he crafted me like clay, he poured me like milk, he curdled me like cheese. Job 10, 8 through 10. That's attention, that's detail, that's care. What else is that? That's God's love. How deep the Father's love for us, the depth of it is seen in creation. Now, that means every time that you and I look on the face of another human being, we look on an extension of God's love. Here's number two. How deep is the father's love? It's seen in his daily provisions. God didn't just create us, but God cares for us and he provides for us every single day. Now, most people in the world don't appreciate this or they don't realize this. But as Christians, we should know and appreciate that everything we have, it comes from God. 
Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, what do you have that you have not received? The point is, everything that we've been given in this life is a testament to the fact that God cares about us and God, lo- God loves us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But it's freely given to us by God. When Israel was heading out of Egypt and into Canaan, Moses was prepping them for this. And he would often describe the land that they were going to, the land of Canaan, as a land that flowed with milk and with honey to describe the richness of that land and of the agriculture that was there. But he warned them in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 17 down through verse 18. When you get into the land, beware, lest you forget that it is God that has given you all these things. Beware that you don't say my power and my might have given me this wealth, but it is God that gives you the strength to get wealth. He's saying, don't forget that everything you get everything you'll accumulate is by the benevolent hand of God that you enjoy those things. How do you know that God loves you? He does. And is seen in his daily provisions. Would you turn your Bible to Acts 14? When Paul went to convince pagan people to leave idolatry and turn to the great I am, this was his point. He did it in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, but he also does it in his first missionary campaign with Barnabas. As they're prepared to worship Barnabas and Paul for the gospel they preach, Paul forbids them. But this is his point about the God they serve in verse 17. This God that we serve left himself without witness. He didn't leave himself without evidence. What is the evidence that he exists? He did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and with gladness. Paul says, you know that God is true and real and exists and he's higher than the heavens. He's not located in stone or stubble because he has provided us richly with all things to enjoy. First Timothy six and verse 17. God's daily provisions testify to the fact that he loves you when you eat food, when you enjoy his oxygen and his air. God's saying to you and to your heart, if you're paying attention, I love you and I care about you. God does this for everybody in the world. Now, this shocks us in our human flesh that God not only does this for his people, but God does this for everybody in the whole world. God loves everybody, but everybody doesn't love God back. And he knows that. And yet he doesn't pull up. He doesn't restrain his love. He freely lavishes on the enemies and even on the wicked. You remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 545. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. What amazing love. Luke 635 says he's kind to the unthankful and the evil. How could it be? Because God's love is deep. It's rich. It's expansive. We would think about individuals like that. Aren't they his enemies? Aren't they his foes? But every atheist that uses every ounce of his energy every ounce of his intellect and his resources to prove that God does not exist, even on them, God showers blessings. Every bit of oxygen that they breathe. Every morsel of food that they take in. Every ounce of energy that they muster to prove that God doesn't exist is given to them by the very God that they try and deny. That's because God loves even them. Mark down Psalm 145 and verse 9. It says, God is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. God loves. But God loves everybody. And God shows that by the fact that he provides on a daily basis. That doesn't mean that he approves their behavior. It doesn't mean that he won't condemn them in the end. But it does mean this. God's love is so deep. It is impossible to misbehave your way out of it. That shocks us. But that's just the reality. He told rebellious Judah in Jeremiah 31 and verse three, I have loved you with an everlasting love and I've drawn you with cords of loving kindness. God just continues to love, even though he is loved less and not loved back. His daily provisions prove it to us that he loves us. Every time you read a heart stabbing poem, 
Every good book you've ever read, every good meal you've ever had, every family memory that you've enjoyed or created, every good thing that we enjoy in this life, all of those things are signposts which point beyond themselves to the love that stands behind human history. To the God that says, listen, I'm doing those things to point you to myself, to me, because I really do love you. James 1.17 says every good and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James is saying to us, listen, God gives good gifts, but James is saying more than that. James is saying God is so good that not only does he give good gifts, but in him there's no shadow of change. You know what that means? You know what God's going to give tomorrow? He's going to give good gifts. And you know what he's going to give the day after that? Good gifts, because God is good and he can't change. That's all that he can give. Whenever his hands are extended, you can bank on this one reality. Something's coming out and it is always going to be good because that's who he is. But it's not just in the food. It's not just in the oxygen. It's not just in the material things that he provides for us daily. It's in the spiritual blessings as well. You know, the book of Lamentations is probably the darkest book in the Bible, but it has one of the brightest spots in all of the Old Testament. In Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, he says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. And because of that, I will hope in him. God blesses us physically every day, but spiritually as well. And so he says to the Christian man doing his very best, but he knows his own weakness, his own failings, his own temptations. He says, listen, my mercies are new every single morning. You walk in the light. I'll cleanse you. You confess those sins. They're forgotten and forgiven daily. I bless you with spiritual provision. To the woman struggling with unbelief who hasn't obeyed the gospel, but she needs to. He says, I'm blessing you on a daily basis to point you to myself. The very fact that the sun rose this morning is my attempt. To get you to repent and turn to me. Second Peter three and verse nine. God loves us because he created us. Yes, but also because he provides on a daily basis. Here's number three. How deep is God's love? God's love is seen in the sacrifice that Jesus made. You know, this one had to be on the list. And in fact, if we're ranking them, this one is probably at the top spot in number one. John 3.16 has been called the golden text of the Bible, and it is just that. It is golden. For God so loved the world that he gave his one unique or only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but instead enjoy everlasting life. How do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God loves you? Look at the cross. And when you've looked at the cross, the Bible commands us to look again and not only to look, but to stare. You say, I don't feel loved. I don't feel appreciated in this sea of seven billion people. Does he see me? Does he care? Jesus says, I went all the way for you. I love you even to death. We hear this and you've heard this your whole life. If you're a Christian for any amount of time, you've heard that Jesus loved you enough to die. And we nod our heads and we shake them and we affirm and we say, I know. But the challenge is from Paul. Do you really know? Evidently, according to Paul, there's knowing the love of Christ. And then there's knowing the love of Christ. If you have kids or grandkids, you know, this is true. You tell your kids what you tell your grandkids what I love you. And they say, yeah, I know. As they run and knock you over as they go out the house. Right. How tight. Could you hug them to get them to see it? What could you buy them to get it communicated or get it across? What could you do to express to your children that they really might know if we fail to appreciate it on a human basis? How often might we be guilty of selling the infinite God short when he says, no, I really love you. You have no idea. 
greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15 and verse 13. Jesus is saying it doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any higher than this. I really do love you. Do you appreciate it? Never doubt that. First John three sixteen says, by this, we know love that he laid down his life for us. And because of that, we should lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus's death and crucifixion says to everybody that would listen to everybody that would turn his way. I'm deeply in love with all of humanity and I want to save you. He was willing to go to the cross for us. You start reading the Bible and you get to Genesis 22 and you read that God tells Abraham to go up on Mount Moriah and offer there his son, Isaac, his only son, whom he loves for a burnt sacrifice. And, you know, the account as Abraham makes his way up and draws the knife, heaven intervenes and stops him from going through with what God had initially commanded him. And it says that now God knew that Abraham loved him because he was going to offer up his only son for God's sake or according to God's command. But when God got ready to walk his son up to Calvary. There was no heavenly intervention. In fact, there was heavenly silence. And when there could have been an exchange and somebody given in his place, the crowd shouted out loud, give us Barabbas. That's who we want. And God didn't stop it or say a word. If you couldn't say that God really loved you, that'd be the cruelest act in human history. But the reality is that God did that. God allowed those things to take place with his son. So that you might know the grand reality, what we just did and partaking of the Lord's Supper every week. We need to do it because the Bible commands it. But you and I need weekly reminders because the other six days of the week, the devil and all the hosts of his his angels are trying to convince us that what Jesus did for us wasn't really what it was. And God saying he was bruised for your iniquities. The chastisement of your peace came on him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He didn't deserve it. We did. And he went through with it because he loves every one of us. The sacrifice of Jesus makes the point that can't be missed by those that are in touch with what God is saying to us in Scripture. I love you. He never said a word. First Peter two twenty three. They reviled him. He didn't say anything. He prayed for their forgiveness. Luke twenty three thirty four. He says, Father, forgive them for their ignorance. They know not what they do. He put others needs ahead of his own. He said to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise. He was saving other individuals instead of saving himself, even in the moment where they said, if you're the Christ, save yourself and come down. Imagine if you went through all of that and had people at the end of it to question whether or not you really love them. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? Does God love me? How deep the father's love. The sacrifice of Jesus says it's as deep as the ocean and as high as the heavens. Here's number four. Does God love me? How deep is God's love? It's seen in spiritual adoption. God doesn't just forgive us and free us, but God calls us into his family. How do I know that God loves me? How deep the father's love for us? We get to enter into the family of God. First John three and verse one says it this way. The old King James has behold what manner of love newer translations have. Behold, what kind of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. God's love is unique for us in that we get to be ushered into and become a part of the family of God. We're afraid of this. Sometimes we think we may be overstating the case. I don't want to go too far with the love of God. It's been abused. It's been misrepresented. But no one has ever gone too far in explaining and describing the love of God. According to Paul, it just can't be done. I don't want to overemphasize it. I don't want people to get the wrong idea. No, we may downplay it, but we can't play it up enough. Behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. 
you know, Jonathan Edwards said, you can you can know honey in two different ways. You can know the chemical makeup of honey or you can taste it and know it. But only the man in the latter case has truly experienced it. Now, you can know theologically and theoretically that God loves you, but only those who have obeyed the gospel have actually tasted it and experienced it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34 and verse eight. You can know it intellectually or you can know it by experience as you're immersed into Christ and as you become a son. Look at Galatians chapter three. Turn your Bible to Galatians three and notice what Paul says at the end of that chapter, beginning in verse 26, about the love of God that makes us no longer sinners but transitions us into the relationship whereby we become sons. In Galatians 3 and verse 26, he says, For we are all the children or the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of us as have been baptized into Christ have put him on. And we normally stop there, but Paul says not only that, more has happened. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's descendants or offspring according to the promise. God says, now you're in my family. To them who believed on him, he gave right to become the sons of God, even those who believe on his name. John 1, 12 and 13. Does God love us? How deep is the father's love? He grants us spiritual adoption. It's one of the spiritual blessings that Paul mentions in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. It wasn't a Jewish practice. It was a Roman one in the first century. And one first century source says that this is how it often happened. There'd be a procession before witnesses and before other individuals. And a Roman man could pick out a child and say, I want him to be in my family. And he bring the child up and they go through this procession before many witnesses. And in that moment, the child would no longer be an orphan or be an outcast. He'd be in the family. But more than that, immediately. He'd be given all of the rights and all of the privileges that every other child in the family enjoyed. You know, in our culture, they say the older a child gets in that system, the less likely that he or she will be adopted. But in Christ, there are no age limits. People are baptized at nine and at 90. There's no limitations. God says, I welcome you in. Now, here's where we need to really pause and drink deeply. Our association with this familiar relationship may cause us to sell God short. If you had a great father, if he was involved, if he loved you, if he spent time with you, if he just drew near and close to you, you might read about God's fatherly love and his care and you might sell God short. But what the Bible is driving at is this. If you had the greatest father in the world, he is merely a shadow as great as he was to the great father that we read about in Scripture. And if you had an abusive an absent father. A man who wasn't all he should have been, who wasn't there. The Bible is saying, listen, when you read about the fatherhood of God, don't sell him short. He's not that. He's everything your father could never be. God loves us and he welcomes us into the family. And all of the privileges and rights that belong to the Christ outside of his deity are now ours. We're not just servants in the household, but we're sons. And it's because he loves us. Now, here's number five. God's love is deep and it is apparent in the fact of his abiding presence. God loves us. How deep is the father's love? He abides with us throughout life. He's always going to be with us. In 2016, a woman was pulled over in New York for driving in the HOV lane, which is the high occupancy vehicle lane. At certain times in the day, you've got to have more than one person in the car. And she did, or at least it appeared to be, until police pulled her over and they saw that this is what she had going on there. A nice shot at a mannequin. She tried her best, but he wasn't buckled up. And so that kind of tipped the police off and she was given a ticket. When the Bible says in Matthew 28 and verse 20, Jesus says, 
I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. It isn't some sort of mock imagination, better felt than told experience. Well, I feel like Jesus is close. I feel like God is there. No, he really is. Let your heart be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. He said, I'll never leave you nor abandon you so that you can boldly say the Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. What can men do to me? Hebrews 13, five and six. He loves us too much to allow us to go through the hardships and the losses and the difficulties of life alone. He is with us and with us all the way. When the Bible says in John 13 and verse one that Jesus loved his disciples unto the end, what does that mean until the end? You see, we love until we're betrayed, until we're mistreated, until we're abandoned. But Jesus knew all of those things were coming and coming from those closest to him. And he loved them still. And he says, listen, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Turn your Bible to Isaiah 43 and notice in the Old Testament what God says to exiles who will be coming home from Babylonian captivity about his continual and his abiding presence. Isaiah 43, he starts out in verse two. He says, I'll be with you when you walk through the waters and when you pass through the rivers and the fire won't burn you and the flame won't kindle you. Verse three, I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel. Circle it in verse four. He says, I love you. And then in verse five again, I will be with you. How deep is the father's love? It's deep enough to allow him to abide with us throughout life. You say, well, preacher, I've I've had loss. I've had hardship. And if I'm being honest with you, look, I know those Bible passages, but there are just some times in my life when I just feel alone. I just feel like I don't have a friend to call on or anybody to lean on. There have just been times in my life when I've gone through deep bouts of depression and loneliness and sorrow. And I know all of these passages, but how could they be true when I'm having all of these feelings? And the reality is that the hardships in our lives don't shrink his presence. But in fact, the Bible says he's closer to us then than at any other time. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help when not in times of prosperity, though, that's true. A very present help in times of trouble. Psalm 46, one. God is near to the brokenhearted and to those crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. It's as if God looks down from heaven and says, let me find the most distraught, the most disturbed, the most heartbroken person in the universe. And I'm going to draw as closely to that person as I can, because I really do love them, especially in times of loss and hardship. God says, I'm with you always. Matthew 1, when he came, he was God with us. But even now he's still with us. And it's because he loves us. Now, here's the sixth and final one this morning. How deep is the father's love? It's deep enough to endure everything. Romans 8 may very well be the most victorious passage in all of the Bible for Christians. Paul starts out in Romans 8 and verse 1. He says, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, meaning there is no guilty verdict for the child of God. You can forget about hell. If you're in Christ, you can so live as to forfeit that salvation. But the reality is this. So long as you persist, so long as you hold fast, he won't cast you out. John six thirty seven. Jesus says, those who come to me, I will in no way cast them out. Yes, that passage is often abused to teach once saved, always saved. But the reality from the New Testament is this. We can be once saved and be always saved. And that's really what God wants. Paul says in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. 
I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, things present or things to come, height or depth, or any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does God love me? Romans 8 says, not only does he love you, but nothing could separate you from it. The world has fooled us on this one. We tend to think of love as soft and sensitive and as flimsy. But according to scripture, love is the strongest thing in the world. Love never fails. First Corinthians 13, eight. Now, by his faith and hope and love, these three, the greatest, according to Paul in first Corinthians 13, 13 is love. How much does God love me? He loves us enough to allow his love to endure and it'll still be with us into eternity. Dan Ortland says we need to really grasp this. Because just about the time that these words start jumping off of Scripture into our hearts, all the doubts and the roars from the evil one try to get in. And we start to say things like, yeah, preacher, but you don't know what I've done, Hiram. And you don't know how much of it I've done and you don't know how bad I've been. But you and I need to hear the gospel's response as he says to us, I know exactly who you are. And you know that you're a sinner and your life's a mess. Well, that's good. And you say, well, I've messed up and that's true. And before you met me, your life was consumed with yourself and your selfish motives. But all of that's forgotten now that you're in Christ. All of those things have been forgiven. And it's about me and you and our relationship together. I was pronounced guilty so that you could go free. I was indicted so that you could be exonerated. I was executed so that you could go free. But the cross is not the end of my love. It is only the beginning. It's a doorway. It's an entry point. But it goes beyond that, even into eternity. Allow your heart to crack open with this joy and immerse your part soul into the sea of his love. Does God love me? He says, I love you. Yes, even you. Romans five and verse 10 says, if while we were enemies of Christ, we were reconciled through the death of his son, we will much more now be saved through his life. If when we were on the opposite side of Jesus, he loved us enough to die for us. Imagine how much he loves us now. Stuart Townend said when he was writing that song, he had written songs before how deep the father's love for us. He said, you know, I just I thought about the cross. I thought about how much God really loved me. And I pictured myself as I probably would have been in the first century in the crowd with the others crying for Barabbas, a guilty man who had done our community and our nation harm. But because the heart can be so twisted by sin, I wouldn't have called out for the righteous one to be released. And he said those thoughts caused him to just meditate on the crucifixion. And he wrote the words to the song that we often sing. Do you see Paul in Ephesians three fourteen to 21? Oh, these are already Christians in Ephesus. They've already obeyed the gospel. But if we really know our hearts, Miss Hunter is not the only one who often asks the question. My God, do you love even me? Paul says, I want you to know the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. You say, I know it somewhat, but we can all stand to know it a little bit more. It's always great when you know these things in your head, but your life is eternally changed when you really know them in your heart. The New Testament says the love of Christ is unconditional, but the salvation of Christ is conditional. Jesus loves everybody in the world, and he showed that by dying on the cross. But he invites everybody to taste and experience that love by believing that he is Christ, by turning from sin and based on a confession that acknowledges what the heart believes to be immersed in water, to have your sins washed away. But not just immersed in water. According to Matthew 28, 19, we're also immersed into a relationship, baptized into the father, son and spirit and united so long as we persist 
forever and ever. God really does love you. And in summary, what God wants from you and from me is for us to love him back. Maybe you need to do that this morning to express that love by obeying the gospel. We'd be happy to witness that and to be a part of it. Maybe you're saying one lesson, Hiram, you just haven't convinced me. We'd be happy to study with you privately to discuss these things further with you. And maybe you're already a Christian. And Paul's prayer is really for you. You feel unloved. You feel alone. You feel discouraged. You're a son. You're a daughter of God. You're in the family of God. And we love to pray with you and pray for you. It is our custom to sing a song of invitation at the end of this lesson. And we'd be happy to assist you in any way if this is your invitation. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.